Well, good morning. Great to see all of you on this beautiful summer day here in this room and greetings to our campuses and to those of you joining us online. We're so glad you're here. My name's Scott. I'm one of the pastors here and grateful to uh, be able to preach for you today. Um, I want to start by asking a question uh, first. What, uh, has anyone ever asked something really hard of you? Anyone ever asked something really difficult? Maybe it was uh, something to do with a big life choice or something related to a relationship. Uh, perhaps it involved a decision about money or a request for your time. Maybe it was someone in your family or even something a child asked of you, but it was a real challenge for you to do. Now imagine that someone was God asking you. Our sermon today is focused on Abraham, who was a pro at following God in his life, but he had to wrestle with one of the most famous and most troubling commands that God has ever given to one of his people. And his response to this situation gives us a profound lesson on what it means to, uh, to follow Jesus, to follow God. So we're in this series right now called The Rest of the Story, and we're looking at familiar stories and characters from the book of Genesis. Now, while the stories are familiar, the Bible has a lot of layers to it, and if we don't keep wrestling with what they mean and the deeper things that God might want to say in them, our faith can get stale and stunted. And we've been saying this for the past few weeks, but if your faith doesn't grow up with you, you will grow out of it. It'll become a relic from a previous chapter in your story. And our hope is that the story that God is writing in your life will be current and fresh. And the fact that you're here today listening, this means that there is something that God has for you, a new page to write. So whatever you came in the door with, I trust that God's going to meet you in it. And today we're going to take a deeper look at this story of Abraham, the great father of our faith, and more specifically at the part of the story where God asks him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. Let's pray. So Lord, we ask that you would open this very challenging part of your scripture to us. And may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, uh, be acceptable to you today. In Christ's name, amen. So let's start with the flannel graph version of Abraham's story. This is what we've been doing the past few weeks. And so, uh, you know, Abraham's story covers over 10 chapters in Genesis, but here's the short version, okay? Abraham starts off actually as Abram, a great-grandson of Noah and part of the repopulation of the, of the earth after the great flood. There he is. Um, and uh, one day, Abram gets this very specific call and promise from God. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed by you. What a great promise. So Abraham gets this, Abram gets this promise to uh, be the uh, one who blesses the earth with his children. Um, so Abraham says, sure, sounds like a great deal. He packs up his stuff, heads out, 
gets to the promised land, but it's not ready yet, and then there's this famine, and so he has some detours. And along the way, uh, he has some serious doubts about this fantastic promise that God has made to him, especially because his wife Sarah, turns out, is unable to have children. That puts a, a bit of a wrench in the plan. So God reassures Abram and makes this big promise to him called a covenant, and then in that process changes his name to Abraham and Sarah's name, Sarai to Sarah, um, and then more time goes by, but eventually, but eventually God gives Abraham and Sarah a child, and it's Isaac. Isaac is the one who will be the next step on the fulfillment of God's promise. And so, that's the quick version, Abraham is held up as a model of faithfulness and steadfast obedience. And all this is true, but there is more to the story. Abraham certainly enjoyed an intimacy with God that was special and unique. He seems to have been in conversation with God and received special visions. He experienced the blessings of obedience and saw the ways that his trust in God was rewarded. He had this special experience with God. And yet, at the same time, there were at least two times when he passed off his wife Sarah as his sister instead of his wife because he was afraid of earthly kings. He also questioned God's promises on more than one occasion, and then out of impatience and a lack of faith, he has a child with his servant Hagar instead of Sarah in hopes of speeding up the promise. Have you ever wanted to give God a little help in speeding up what he's asked of you? I'm just going to help you out, God. Now, his trust and obedience were far from perfect, even after seeing God in all, uh, deliver him in all these different ways and of the closeness he experienced. But because, this, um, because this, this is really important, because God has put a stake in the ground here. Abraham is his guy. God's redemptive plan starts with Abraham. So God needs to be really sure and Abraham needs to be really sure that they are all in, that Abraham is fully devoted to God above all else. And this leads to this unthinkable test. God tells Abraham that he needs to give up his son Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice. And this part is generally NSFG, not suitable for flannel graphs, okay? Here's the text. Sometime later, God tested Abram, Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, God, he replied. And God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Oh, boy. So now in Genesis, we're moving past beautiful gardens and rainbows and cute whales and giant towers, and we're talking about sacrificing your child. This is one of the most challenging texts in Scripture, and for many, this is a bridge too far. This is the place I know where some people even give up on faith. Atheist Richard Dawkins gives voice to what might be in the back of your head as you consider what God is asking of Abram. 
This disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse, bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense, I was only obeying orders. While I understand how Dawkins could come to his cynical conclusion, it ignores the context and the history and the relationships that are built into the earlier chapters of Genesis. And we're going to dive into that in a a minute, but let's start with the question that we've been dealing with throughout this series, and that is, is this story true? Did it actually happen? And as we've seen with other stories, there is some diversity of opinion on how to answer that question. Some scholars say Abraham never lived at all, and all of this was a literary invention of priestly writers who were in exile in Babylon. They argue that these stories don't have to be believed literally in order to understand the morals and meanings that they demonstrate. You can take the stories and their meaning seriously without believing they actually happened. Now, it's important to know that no texts about Abraham, apart from the Bible, have survived from this time period. However, this doesn't prove that he never lived. Historical remains from such a long-ago epoch are necessarily haphazard. And this is true even for grand potentates like court scribes, much less someone like Abraham, who was a relatively obscure figure during his lifetime and lived a semi-nomadic life in various locations. So in pondering such questions, it's good to remember the archaeologist's well-worn maxim that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. The accounts of Abraham in Genesis reveal details that reflect real places and cultural realities of the time. While this is circumstantial, it makes the biblical stories of the patriarchs plausible. Scholar W.F. Albright notes that, as a whole, the picture of Genesis is historical, and there's no reason to doubt the general accuracy of the biological details and the sketches of personality which make the patriarchs come alive with vividness, unknown to a single extra-biblical character in the whole vast literature of the ancient Near East. In other words, it's not just Abraham. We lack details about many things in this era, and so while we don't have direct evidence, it's plausible and reasonable to take these stories at face value and treat them as actual events and history. But either way, as we've been sharing each week, it's important to keep the main thing the main thing. Being a Christian is built on the foundation of Jesus and his life, his death, and his resurrection. And even with the Bible as our authority, we can have different understandings of the Hebrew scriptures and still share a common foundation and ethic of following Jesus. Hopefully, this can be a safe place to work out our questions while keeping Jesus at the center. And this is one of the things I love about our church. If you have questions, welcome to the club. Back to our story. Let's start with this first, the first question. How could God ask this of Abraham? Why would God promise Abraham a son and then take the son away? This is where it goes off the rails. Is this a cruel trick, a strange inconsistency, or is something else going on? There are a couple of reasons that this request 
makes sense. And uh, this is important. This is where it's really important to understand the context and the time that Abraham lived. In the ancient Near East, at the time of Abraham, the need to atone for sin was well understood. The sacrificial system was common to many faiths and cultures, and it was a way to make things right before God. This is why sacrifice was an act of worship. The whole point of sacrifice was to give an homage to your God. Also, it's important to understand the cultural norm of primogeniture. This was common and understood in this era. Primogeniture means that the firstborn son had certain rights and responsibilities. Firstborns were bound up with the family in a special way, which included carrying responsibility for the sin of the family. Tim Keller writes this, when God stated that Abraham's only son's life was forfeit, that was not an irrational, contradictory statement to him. Notice that God was not asking him to walk over to Isaac's tent and just murder him. He asked him to make him a burnt offering. He was calling in Abraham's debt. His son was going to die for the sins of the family. So Abraham understands what's going on here. God is holy and his judgment is just. But God also has given him this amazing promise. God is also the God of grace and mercy. And so he's living in this tension and he's got to hold these things together as he moves to carry out what God has asked of him. Which leads to the next question. Why was Abraham willing to do this? God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son the night before he is to leave. Think about that. Think about that night. The text says he got up early. Of course he got up early. He didn't sleep a wink that night. Can you imagine what must have been going through his mind? I asked this at the beginning, but think about when you've had to do something really hard, like share difficult news with someone or confront someone or report for surgery or visit a dying friend. How did you sleep? I know I toss and turn and rehearse what I'm going to say and think about the worst possible thing that could happen. Um, That's how my mind works. I could imagine Abraham thinking of ways to plead with God or, or maybe even just getting up in the morning, grabbing Isaac and running like Jonah as far away from God as he could get. But after a fitful night of sleep, Abraham gets up and is resolved to follow God's instructions. And he packs up everything and begins the journey to Moriah. Why? He trusted God. It's as simple and profound as that. It's the only answer. Abraham leaned into the promises that God had made to him and what he knew of God's grace and mercy from his experience. And when it came down to it, he trusted. He had seen God intervene in too many many times in his life in miraculous ways. Maybe he thought back to how God had led him to a new land or considered how he had prospered and been provided for with great resources and favor. Or maybe he remembered that even though he and Sarah were old and advanced in years, 
God promised to give them a son, and they had one. Maybe he thought about Sarah's laugh when she heard the promise and her response, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? Abraham saw God act in miraculous ways, and even as he didn't fully know how this would work out, he trusted the one behind the command. Somehow God was going to put together law and mercy, holiness and grace. And for Abraham, what that meant was, whatever happened on that mountain, somehow Isaac was coming back down with him. How do we know that? A few clues from the text. When they reached the mountain for the sacrifice, Abraham indicated to his servant that after worshiping, both he and Isaac would return. And then later, when Isaac asks about the lamb for the sacrifice, Abraham responds, God himself will provide the lamb. It seems Abraham prepared himself to do what God asked, but also expected something else to happen. And then in Hebrews, we get the insight into Abraham's thoughts. It says this, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So here we get the answer. Even if he had to go through with the sacrifice, Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. He believed in the power of God to resurrect his son. And as one author put it, Abraham's life was a Rolodex of resurrection moments. From the moment God called him out of Ur, God demonstrated his resurrection power over and over again. Abraham believed in resurrection. But as it turns out, that resurrection power was saved for another day. Because Abraham is stopped from taking his son's life by angels who intervene. And Isaac's life is spared. God provides a ram for the sacrifice, as Abraham predicted. And Abraham is forever changed. He put everything on the line, and now he knows more than ever that he can trust a faithful God. So what does that mean for us? Tim Keller says, if we are honest, all of our problems come from our inability to trust God. Think about that for a minute. Do you believe it? If we are honest, all of our problems come from our inability to trust God. For some reason, I can believe that in my head, but it seems way harder in my life. Now, there are some things where I have no trouble trusting God. It's, it's just easy and I want to. And there are others that I clutch at so hard my knuckles turn white. This is our nature. We, we doubt. We say, if, if I really trusted God, 
all the way to the bottom with my kids or my work or my finances, it might not go as I want. I might miss out. It might be hard. We wonder if God really has our best in mind. We think of our lives through lenses of this world. So what do we do? Well, here's a really important secret. We even need God to help us trust God. We even need God to help us trust God. If we want the kind of intimate relationship that Abraham had with God, the kind of trust that would allow him to put Isaac on the altar, it starts by admitting that we need his help. Faith that becomes great faith starts by saying, I don't have it. I want to believe, Lord, help my unbelief. God will respond to that prayer. Go to Jesus first and let him walk with you as you gain faith and trust. Because trust begins with little steps before it starts with bigger strides. It's something that is built. Every experience with God, every answered prayer leads to deeper trust. And in the end, God wants you to trust him, trust him, not just in him. This is relational trust. It's more than what God can provide or what God can do in his power. God wants your full devotion. He wants to be the most important thing in your life. It's the first commandment, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Whenever we find ourselves more devoted to something besides Jesus, it's called an idol. And our hearts are great at creating them. We give our devotion to so many things without even thinking of it. And sometimes we don't even know we're devoted to something until we're forced to choose. And sometimes God will put you in that place where you have to choose what's most important. Jesus noticed this challenge with his disciples. They, were, they, had, it, they had the challenge too. And here's what he said to them. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it, and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Now, loving your family is a really, really good thing, and it's important but Jesus says, you need to love him more. Jesus is the only one who saved you from your sin, who died on a cross for you, who has loved you since the beginning of time and will be with you when you die. My dad loved me deeply. I know that. But I remember when I had chosen to spend my first year out of college working as a church intern. He was concerned I said, Dad, I think I'm supposed to do this. I think this is what I need to do. I feel called to it. But my dad kept sending me articles on Forbes' 100 best jobs in America. And spoiler alert, clergy was not on the list. <laughs> I said, Dad, you're a Christian. I'm sad that you don't support this decision. And he said, I, 
I love you, son. I, I want what's best for you. I'm just worried about you financially. And I, I understood. I, I, I got where he was coming from, but I said to myself in that moment, I've got to figure out which father I need to follow here. Now, just so you know, my dad came around. He was super proud of me, and we, we're, we're great. Um, but he had his own journey of trust that he had to take. This week, a group of our students, Mark mentioned this earlier, uh, are down in Brazil right now with uh, Hope Unlimited for Children. It's a great ministry. It was founded by Philip and Jack Smith. Um, in the early 1990s, you, uh, some of you may remember this, the news was filled with these horrific reports of street children being massacred by vigilantes in Brazil, and this was actually uh, state-sanctioned. Horrible stuff. Jack and Philip were so moved, they couldn't sleep. And they felt like God was saying, you need to do something. And so they, they got on a plane and uh, with no plans, no contracts, uh, no contacts, no Portuguese, and no money, but lots of trust in God, they flew to Brazil. And on the flight, Philip happened to be sitting next to a gentleman whose father was on the board of an abandoned orphanage. And this young man was willing to give an introduction to uh, Philip and his, his, his dad, Jack, and say, hey, uh, would you guys meet with them? And they met. And this board decided to gift free a 35-acre parcel of land with some buildings on it to Hope Unlimited for Children. And then... That was the first miracle. And then the second was when Menlo Church felt called to give a large gift that year, they gave it to Hope Unlimited. And the amount they gave was the exact amount needed to renovate the property and get started. Second miracle. God can do a lot when we trust him and take a step. Now, these are big stories. And I, I, you, know, you don't need to become a pastor or start a ministry in another country or put your child on an altar to follow God's will in your life. Trust is built on those little decisions that we make every day. Those little nudges that God gives to you. Maybe to talk to someone, to offer generosity, to let go of control, to confront a behavior, to say a kind word. Those little things. We sometimes talk about two questions of a life surrender to God. One of them is, what, God, what are you saying to me? How are you leading me? What do you want for me? And then the second question is, okay, what am I going to do about what God has asked me to do? How am I going to respond? Are you willing to go when he calls? Are you holding back? Anything in your life that's off limits. Every encounter, every decision can be a chance to trust God a little more. Last thought. Remember that God's promise, the promise that he gives is for you. He says that you should take up your cross and follow me. Dale Bruner reminds reminds us that it's important that the command and follow me 
buttresses the command, take up one's cross, because it is Christ following that enables cross-bearing. Who would be willing to have family and world against them if they did not have Jesus with them? And I don't know if the world's going to be against you, but remember, whatever cross God has given to you, whatever thing that you need to trust God with, he is with you in it. Remember that another father watched another son walk up a hill with wood on his back. And for that father, the knife did fall. And that son was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. And he died the death that we all deserved. But there's resurrection power. And after three days, God raised him from the dead. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And not only that promise, but the promise that God wants to take up residence in your heart and your life. He wants to be with you in your trials, in your laughter, in your tears. So, I don't know what you walked in the door with. I don't know what kind of trials are in front of you. I don't know where God might be nudging you to do something. But I want you to, I want to encourage you to trust just a little more. He wants, God wants all of you, but he'll just take a little more today. What can you give to him? He wants it all, the good, the bad, the ugly. He wants your heart. He wants your full devotion. And he can do a lot with whatever trust you give to him. And he is worthy. Will you trust him today? Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you promise us your presence. And whatever trials people are going through that walked in the door today or are watching online, would you meet them in those places? Would you encourage them? Would you strengthen them? Would you give them faith they don't have on their own? And God, would you help us just, just to trust you a little more today? that we might follow your will, that we might belong more deeply to you. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.